So this is a, a continuation, if you will, of the message that we, we began last week. I talked about glorifying Christ in our daily living, right? I mentioned the fact that so oftentimes Christianity is just, it's, it's walking with the Lord in the monotonous, in the monotony, the, the mundane of life. There are those mountaintop experiences that we love, that we seek so often, when we're just feeling it. You're in the zone, you're fired up, you feel so close to God, walking in victory. But then there are those seasons, and there are many of those seasons, where we're just down in the valley floor, and we're struggling, and we're just trying to, to walk obediently and faithfully and consistently with the Lord. And, and so often I feel like that's where the Lord has us, and honestly, that's where the Lord makes us. And that's really what Paul is, is dealing with in this portion of Colossians. He spent a lot of time talking about the majesty of Christ and the person and the work of Christ as the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Paul fought against all kinds of heresies that had been um, mashed together to create what was uniquely the Colossian heresy, but he doesn't stop there. He, he brings it home to our daily living how we live and walk with Christ. And that's the way that it should be, folks. Good theology, good doctrine, sound Bible teaching ought to connect to our day-to-day -day living. It ought to affect the way that we live for the Lord. And so last week we talked about the role uh, of what it is to serve Christ in the marriage for wives and husbands. But Paul continues on, and he's going to talk about what glorifying Christ looks like as children obeying parents and parents not being overbearing on the children and uh, masters and slaves and I'm going to get into all of that and, uh, and so on and so forth. Our personal devotion life, our prayer, uh, our prayer life, and then our, our testimony, our witness in, in an unbelieving world. All of that is connected to our understanding of Jesus and walking with Him. Amen? And so that's that's where we are at today. That's what we're looking at. And I kind of wanted to start with an illustration from history. Um, there was something called the Thirty Years' War. The Thirty Years' War that was fought in Central Europe from 1618 to 1648. And it was a brutal war. And it was estimated that there was some four and a half to eight million deaths. And that much of that was due to starvation and disease. And there was a young man by the name of Nicholas Herman who fought in that war, and he was crippled badly. And so he, he left the war, and he ended up going to a, a monastery, and he became a monk there. And uh, he was basically a, uh, he worked in the kitchen. You know, he was a clumsy guy. He was not this, uh, he was not hailed as, as one of the monks who was to teach everybody and be on this spiritual pedestal. He was just a low-level kitchen worker. And maybe you've heard the name Brother Lawrence, uh, but that, that's the story of Brother Lawrence. And there's a little booklet that's called Practicing the Presence of God. I would encourage you to read that. And there was something very special and unique about this, this brother, and that was his ability to just commune with God, to live his life day by day in the presence of God. To him, it was a sacrilegious thing to meet with God early in the morning and then to walk away and, and depart from the presence of the Lord, if you will, and to essentially think nothing of God throughout the rest of his working day. And for him, he was able to worship the Lord just as much washing dishes and cooking in the loud, noisy kitchen as he was in his own personal private time in the morning. And it was so obvious, it was so evident that this was true for him that people really admired, they admired his relationship with Jesus and they, they wanted what he had. And so this little book, there, when he died, they found some letters in his, in his room and somebody compiled it into this little book and it's, it's really interesting. And I think that, that's really what we're getting at here. In our day-to-day -day life, knowing Christ, walking with Christ, living in the presence of God, blessing his name, in all facets, even if it is something as, in our minds, simple as just the family unit or our testimony in, in the community or, or the workplace or wherever it is God has planted you. And so with that, we're going to pick up in Colossians chapter 3, verse 20, and we're going to continue on with um, glorifying Christ in the home. 
glorifying Christ in the home. And so verse 20 there says this, Children, obey your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. So this obedience here, children, obey your parents. It's, uh, the word is hupakuo, and it's, it's literally underhearing. Underhearing. It's, it's two words combined there. And it's to obey what is heard, acting under the authority of the one speaking. Uh, it's really listening to the one giving the order, and it suggests attentive listening. It's, it's really listening with the intent to obey. That's, that's what Paul is saying, children. This is, I think this is neat. Paul writes a letter to the church there in Colossae, and he addresses all of these people, but he doesn't leave the children out. And he says, children, you have a responsibility in the Lord. The Lord commands you to obey your parents, to honor your parents, to listen diligently, faithfully, with the intent to obey, to respond. And so uh, the Lord's commands, they apply to a, a wide range of folks, and in the home, not least of which the children. The Lord expects the children to obey their parents. It says in all things, and again, this is really a general principle. If the parent were to say to their child, you can't believe Jesus, uh, you're not to, to, you know, to pray or, or something like that, then there, that would be a time and place where the, ch the child should disobey the parent. But generally speaking, it's a matter of respect, honor, and obedience, not disregarding the parent, not thinking that somehow you know more than the parents. This is an old old uh, story. It's, it's really dated. You can tell, but there was an ad of a guy that had a set of uh, encyclopedias. Remember those things? Uh, for sale. And he said, I have a teenager now, and he knows everything, so I don't need these anymore. <laughs> and so, you know, it, it's, it's not that, okay? You're not to be like that. The, the child is to honor the parent, listen to the parent, obey and respect the parent. And this is well-pleasing to the Lord, Paul says. This pleases the Lord. And you know, Christ is glorified. I talked about this last week. Christ is glorified when the husband loves the wife as Christ loved the church because it reflects Christ and his love and service to the church. Christ is glorified when the wife submits to the husband because that reflects Christ and his, the, the nature of the Trinity and how the son submits to the father perfectly. And so here... This really glorifies God as Christ was perfectly obedient to the Father in all points. And so this is well-pleasing to the Lord because, quite frankly, this too reflects God's nature, obedience to the parents. You know, God loves obedience. God loves obedience. In fact, the Bible says that we demonstrate our love to God through what? Our obedience. He says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And so God is honored. God delights in obedience. God commands that the children would obey their parents. And quite frankly, I would simply say that um, we, are, we parents ought to model obedience for our children. You remember I talked about last week we all have to submit in this world on some level, and you will see husbands that demand that their wives submit to them, but when it's time for them to submit in, in whatever arena, they're not willing to do it, not even a little bit. And the same can be true of parents. Children are called to obey the parents, but are we obedient? You know, they see that. They watch that. And so we have to be modeling Christ-like obedience in our own lives, first and foremost to God himself, but then also to those whom we we are, uh, we are under as authorities in this life, and so we have to model obedience if we really want our children to respect and, and obey us as well. So there is a, certainly an obligation there. Well, next, Paul begins to deal with the parents and their responsibility. And so fathers, but I would also say that this one, one commentator suggested that this could, could very well be both mother and father, but it does specifically mention fathers, and that can simply be just the unique role that the father plays in the home. It's just so important that the dad not be derelict in his duties, that he's there, and that he is uh, fathering well and faithfully his children. 
And so here, verse 21, it says, Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. So this do not provoke, this is to incite, to frustrate. And so fathers are exhorted by Paul here, and I would say parents, both mothers and fathers, are not to incite or frustrate their kids. Why? He says, lest they become discouraged. And the idea there is that they would be disheartened. And really, I think the idea is being overbearing to the point where the, the spirit of the child is just crushed. They're disheartened. They're hopeless. They, they, they'll never measure up. They'll never be able to please their parents. And so it's like, why try? And that's the idea. That's, that's what Paul is getting at. And it, it's just funny to me, um, you know, as a parent with small children, I feel like it's actually the other way around. It's like, I feel like I'm the one being incited and frustrated and <laughs> disheartened and hopeless. Um, but as they get older, I understand that that really can change and that parents can have such expectations on their children. And, uh, and we just have to be careful about that. We have to give our children the freedom to figure it out, to make mistakes, to be kids, to be teenagers, uh, obviously, and, and not to be too overbearing or, or demanding on them so that we don't crush their spirit, as it were. Now, this would have been shocking. This would have been a shocking thing in this culture because um, the father especially had ultimate power over the family and over life or death, quite frankly. Children could be tossed out, thrown out to the, into the elements to die if the parents or the father in particular didn't want the, the child. And there, there's actually historical records, letters written that, where people talk about this very thing. And so uh, there was a soldier, uh, a Greek soldier in battle, and he, he sent communication home and said, if it's a, if it's a boy, great. If it's a girl, then, then dispose of her. And I mean, that's, that's horrible. That's, that's the way that it was in that culture that was very prevalent. So for, for the, the New Testament to come along and for Paul to say, actually, you have an obligation to your child would have been shocking in that culture. And so the reality is children are a trust from the Lord. They're, they're gods, and they're in our, our possession for a time, and we have a responsibility to train them in the, the, the ways of the Lord and to love them and to bless them and to discipline them and to give them back to God ultimately. And so we have to be careful. We have to recognize that and take that seriously and recognize this. Jesus said what? My yoke is easy and my burden is light. Okay, so we have, we have a, a master and he is not harsh with us. You know, his, his yoke is easy and his burden is light. And so we have to remember that with our own children. It's like the Lord's yoke is easy, but mine ain't. You know, you, know, you, you want grace, go to Jesus, but it's going to be all law in the home. You know, that's not, that's not good, right? And so Paul says that children are to obey and respect the parents, but that parents have an obligation to bless and to love and to encourage and support their children. Very much so. All right, so now, so that, that's the family unit. We talked about husbands and wives, parents, children. Now we're going to move into really part two here, and that is glorifying Christ in what I'm going to call the workplace. And we're going to spend a little bit more time talking about this, and uh, I'll explain how I get from servants and masters to, to the workplace. But let me also just say I'm going to, you know, beat up on myself a little bit in this message. You know, I'm going to tell, tell some stories of, of my past experiences. And, uh, and so I, uh, you know, let, let me just be the guy to take the hits, all right? They say you don't want to be the hero of, of your, sto your own stories, right? So let me just, uh, let me just be the butt of, of my own joke. How about that? All right, so Paul is going to address bond servants now and masters. Bond servants and masters. So verse 22, it says, Bond servants, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service as men pleasers, but in sincerity of heart, fearing God. So bond servants here. Let me just give you some 
uh, preliminary thoughts on this issue because obviously this is a very sensitive subject and a hot hot button topic in the day and age that we live in for good reason. So uh, just kind of some thoughts concerning this whole bond servant thing. You know, um, slavery was just commonplace in this culture. In, in Rome at this time, millions and millions and millions of slaves. I heard it said that if you were to go out into the streets of Rome and pretty much look around, you had a 50-50% chance of pointing to someone and that being a slave. And so it was just a very ingrained, deeply ingrained and real part of that culture. In fact, you would have teachers, physicians, etc., who were actually slaves. And um, that was the way that it was in that culture. It was a very terrible thing for a lot of people. And it was actually a blessed thing for a lot of people. For some people to be a slave might actually give you a place of of prestige or prominence in that community, depending on who it was that uh, you served, right? And so it was really kind of all across the board. Now, it's important to know this. Christianity did not endorse slavery. And there are, there are people throughout the years who have tried to say that. You know, in the Civil War in the South, there were plenty of people who tried to use the Bible to say that slavery was a, was a biblical thing. And there are plenty of critics, critics against Christianity, who would say the same types of stuff to try to somehow, uh, you know, attack Christianity. Christianity did not endorse slavery, but it also did not seek to overthrow what was a, a secular societal construct, okay? Christianity, especially in the first century, was by many people viewed to be just a sect of Judaism, and it was obscure, not widely known, and so it wasn't as if Christianity was going to come on the scene and now just overthrow this institution entirely. And so that was not the objective of the New Testament writers. Now, I will say this, Christianity has done so much for the abolition of slavery and for the treatment of women and children throughout the centuries. There is no question there. So given time, as the gospel did permeate and the influence of Christ did work its way around the world, the institution of slavery in very large measure did fall away. Women's rights, children's rights humanitarian efforts, education, hospitals, all of these things came forth in large part because of the influence of the gospel and Christianity. But it wasn't the aim of Christianity to try to overthrow this in the first century. Instead, what the Bible does is it talks about how a person can most glorify Christ in the most difficult of situations. I mean, now we need to chew on that for just a second. How could being in that situation a person most glorify Christ? It wasn't how to get out of that situation. It wasn't how to make your situation better. It was recognizing that you are where you are. How are you going to best honor Christ? And really, folks, that applies to many of us. And I'll talk about this again a little later in the message, but there are a lot of us who would like to get out of situations that we are currently in for one reason or another. And so I think the better question is not so much how can I get out from underneath this difficulty, it's more how can I serve and bless the Lord Jesus in the midst of it, right? How can I, how can I better draw near to Him in the midst of it? And that was the idea here. And so this is the admonishment from Paul is that very thing. Being that you are a bondservant, what does that look like as a Christian, as a Christian, what does that look like? And I would say that in our modern context, this, the, the applications here, uh, they apply uh, very closely to the employee-employer relationship. It's not a one-for-one one kind of thing, right? And, and so I'm not saying that employers are like our masters and we're their slaves, but there are some uh, similarities and applications that can be made uh, from here to there. So that's, that's my objective. That's kind of where I want to go with this. So he says to these bondservants that they are to obey in all things their masters according to the flesh. Now, again, as I've said this over and over, I'll say it again. This does not mean everything without limit because there would have been slaves who would have been expected to blaspheme the name of Christ 
or to worship Caesar as Lord, and they wouldn't do that. They would not do that. They could not do that as a follower of Christ, and they, there would be severe uh, repercussions for that, but they didn't do it in faithfulness to Christ. So there is, an, a, there is a time and a place for that, and that applies very much in the workplace. Um, modern workers should never be unethical for the sake of their employee. I worked at a company once, and uh, OSHA, you may be familiar with OSHA, but their, their job is to come into a place and make sure that they're they are abiding by all the, the government uh, mandates and, and safety protocols for the welfare of the worker. And my boss told me, he said, look, he told all of us, when they come, I want you to be very honest with them about anything that they ask. I don't want you covering for me in any way. Do not do that. And that was great. That's the way that it should be. But a lot of bosses wouldn't do that. They would want you to, to cover up, hide the truth, do what you can so that they don't get dinged by OSHA. And that would be an example of you don't obey in that situation because you have to be honest. You have to be a truth teller. You have to honor Christ in that situation. And so that would be an example of we should obey. Uh, we should you know, serve well our employers, as it were, but not, not without limits. It's a call to diligent and faithful and honest service, frankly. That, that's what we're called to as Christians. And this is not with eye service, he says there in verse 22, not with eye service as men pleasers. And so the idea here is when we do what we do, we're not, we're not just trying to give the appearance that we're really hard workers and that we're doing what the boss expects us to do until the boss is gone, Right? working hard enough to pacify the boss, and then as soon as he's gone, we just totally switch it up and do whatever we want to do, right? Years ago, I, um, I had an employer, a really strange thing. He would, I think he was trying to like send a message to the people, so he would like come out on the floor, and he would be like, you know, not, not that far away from you, and he would kind of be like on the other side of some shelves, and he'd be just be watching you, like glaring at you. And you're like working, and you look up, and there he is, and you're like, this is really weird right now. And he's just sitting there, you know, and uh, you would be working, let me tell you. You would be like on it, and I always thought that was so strange, but then... At that same job, you know, I would come in in the evenings and uh, while day shift was there and he would be there and he would do that kind of stuff, but then he would go home. And then, you know, late into the midnight hours, I mean, oh man, it was like that, it was, the gloves came off. The stuff that we would be doing, you know, I'll just target practice and explosives and, you know, I mean, we were in the southeast. You could do that kind of stuff, you know, but... I remember someone was like, hey, they filled a glove with argon, that's the gas that you use for a blowtorch, and then put like lacquer thinner all the way across the backyard in the grass and sat the glove there and then lit the lacquer thinner and the flame went across and hit the glove and it was like very explosive. <laughs> and it was like three in the morning. And then like the next day I'm at home and I, I get a text and I look at my phone and it's a picture of this huge scorch going across the yard from my boss, and he's like, do you know anything about this? And I'm like, oh, man. Don't do that. Okay, that, that's the idea. Don't do that. You know, uh, we're not men pleasers. We're not just giving the appearance of being a hard worker until the boss is gone, and then it's all fun and games, right? That's what we are not to do. Instead, in sincerity of heart, fearing God. Working in sincerity of heart, fearing God. This is working with integrity at all times because God is always looking. It's not like God is, God is there some of the time and not the rest of the time. It's not like He's there when you first come into work and then He's gone in the middle of the night, right? God is always there. And we recognize that we're ultimately serving the Lord. We're ultimately working as unto Him. And so, in order to please the Lord, we're to work faithfully and diligently all the time. We are to have integrity all the time. And frankly, that's what integrity is. 
Integrity is doing the right thing when you think nobody is looking, right? Or when nobody is looking. And you have, you have a choice. Are you going to are you going to slack or are you going to work hard? Are you going to work faithfully and diligently? And this applies in all, all kinds of ways, whether it's uh, sinful patterns, issues of morality, uh, whatever the case may be, uh, how, how we carry ourselves, how we behave when no one's around, recognizing that God is always there and that we're not men pleasers. We are seeking to please God in sincerity of heart, fearing God. Amen? Verse 23, Paul says, And whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance, for you serve the Lord Christ. So whatever you do, whatever you do, and I would say this goes really even beyond the workplace, wherever you find yourself, whatever you do, you are to do it with all of your heart. You are to give it your best. You are to put your heart into it. Whatever it is God has called you to do, you're to do it with everything that you've got. As to the Lord and not to men. Again, when I, before I was working as a pastor, and I would, I would be in production, whether it was welding, machining, woodworking, I would try to have the mindset that whatever product I was building, I was building this like I was building it for Jesus himself. And I didn't always do that. But I would try to have that mindset. That's what it is to work as unto the Lord. If, if Jesus commissioned you to do something, and you knew that you were going to have to do that for him and deliver it into his hands, we would probably really work hard on it, don't you think? Well, that's really how we're supposed to be in our day-to-day -day lives. Whatever we do, we are doing it as though we are doing it for the Lord himself. And so that's the idea. Whatever you do, do it with all your heart, as to the Lord and not to men. Doing it like you're doing it for Jesus and whatever that is. In your service to Him and your obedience to Him, whatever it is that you are doing. And it says, knowing from the Lord, you're going to receive the reward. You're going to receive a reward from Jesus. So here's the thing you may not get greatly uh, rewarded in this life or from your bosses or from anybody for that matter. I. That was something I learned early on as a Christian. You know, if you're, if you're doing something and you're really excited about it and you can't wait for the person to congratulate you and tell you how great that was, and then that doesn't happen, and you're like, oh man, you figure out pretty early on that you really want to do what you're doing for the Lord because you're not going to get a lot of thanks in this life from men. You're going to get let down, quite honestly, from time to time if you're looking to other people to pat you on the back or congratulate you or thank you, even if you deserve it. But people are fallible and, and things get overlooked and we don't always get that, that, uh, that appreciation or that commendation, right? But not so with the Lord. The Lord doesn't miss a thing. The Lord does not overlook anything. Jesus sees it and we will be rewarded exceedingly by Him because He does not miss a thing. There will never be a time when you have somehow served or honored Christ and he's in debt to you because somehow he overlooked it, right? We serve a heavenly master who doesn't miss a thing, and he is so incredibly generous, so incredibly gracious, knowing that we will receive the reward from him. And let me just also say this. There is no distinction between the secular and the sacred, by that I mean when I worked in the, well, just for the sake of convenience, I'll just say when I worked in the secular field as a woodworker or whatever it was, I used to think I wanted to hurry up and get into ministry because I really wanted to serve the Lord, as though what I was doing then was not service to the Lord, right? And uh, I used to really, really struggle with that. And I realize now that wherever you are, God has called you to that. And that is the place where you are to serve him. So whatever it is you're doing, you're doing it as though you were doing it for the Lord and God is going to use you in that place because I cannot be where you guys are. You guys are really fanned out. You're scattered out into, into the community and God has you right where you're at for a reason, for a purpose. And so we have to recognize that 
it's all service unto the Lord, and God will use us right where we are at. And we don't need to make a distinction as though that is not serving the Lord and somehow, you know, being a pastor or a counselor or something like that is. And it's been interesting for me because I, I really struggled with that for a long time. And I found that once I got into ministry, it's really easy in ministry for it to become mechanical, for it to become dry. I'm in the Word all the time, but I'm not being, you know, replenished by the Word of God. It can become just an obligation or a duty, and you have to show up. You have to be faithful. You know, as a pastor, you don't call in sick. You crawl in sick. And, you know, that it can, you can lose the sense of, like, I'm serving the Lord. I'm doing this for Jesus. That can happen just as much in, in church ministry as it can happen outside the church. So we have to realize it is all unto the Lord. Whether you are working in the home, whether you are working out in the community, whether you are working in a church or a parachurch ministry, whatever it is, it is all unto the Lord and it is all for His pleasure. Amen? And so you got to know that. You have to know that. And then verse 25 says, But he who does wrong will be repaid for what he has done, and there is no partiality. So the idea here is this. Just because you are a Christian, just because you, you have ultimate allegiance to the Lord, does not give you the license to slack off at your job to, to your, the, the one whom you are under their authority in an earthly sense, Right? And God doesn't give special treatment there. He doesn't say, that's okay, really you serve me ultimately, so it doesn't really matter how you serve in, this, in the earthly arena. No, it's, it's the exact opposite. I had a, a Christian boss tell me years ago, he said, Rob, I expect more from my Christian employees. He said, I don't expect you to be the best, but I expect you to give me your best. And that's what counts in God's economy. God is not asking us for, to be, for us to be the very best at whatever it is He's called us to do, but He does want us to give our best. And that is, that's the expectation there. Amen? That's the expectation. So now, Paul is going to go on to talk to the masters. So he talked to the slaves and the obligation that they have to their masters, but ultimately to their heavenly master. Now he's going to go on and he's going to address... The, the earthly masters, and this goes into chapter 4, verse 1. It says, Masters, give your bondservants what is just and fair, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. So, masters are to give what is just and fair. Again, this would have been shocking. This would have been, and this just again goes to show how the Bible, the New Testament, the Lord really did push the boundaries in these things. Um, Slaves in that culture were considered possessions and really nothing more by, by most. There was actually a, a term, I can't remember, I've talked about this before for slaves, and the, the, the word, basically the idea is without a face. And that, that means that they, they have no face, they have no personality, they have no identity, they have no feelings, they're just a tool. They're just a possession. And uh, that was the way that it was for many people, but now the master is actually obligated, obligated to the slave. He owes the slave something. And again, as I said, that would be really shocking. That really reversed the cultural norms here. And it doesn't say be kind or be nice. It doesn't say be nice to them. Now, I think that's significant because you could be nice to an animal. I mean, there are a lot of different ways in which you could be nice, but to be, to be just, to be fair, this really elevates the person to a place of humanity and dignity, recognizing that they are created in the image of God, and you are to be just, and you are to be fair to this person. Not just kind, not just nice, but there is to be justice there. And so that, that's very significant. It really brings them to a place of dignity. And then he says, knowing that you have a master in heaven. And so first off, they are not the final authority. There is, a, there is authority even, an authority even greater than themselves. And that is the, the Lord, the heavenly master. And they are going to answer to that 
the, the earthly master is going to answer to the heavenly master for how they stewarded what they had here on this earth, right? And this is a great principle for employers and, and, and company owners in here that are hearing this uh, because that's really what it is. It's a stewardship that you have. And I think, I think you guys and, and women know this, that it is a stewardship from God and you've got to answer to God. Uh, I, I know I'm telling a lot of stories from, from my experiences working, but it's just how God has used these situations in my lives over the years. I, uh, I worked for a gentleman that, that absolutely saw his, his company as a ministry. And uh, we, we built doors uh, for, for uh, custom kitchen cabinetry. And, and so he said, you know, Rob, we're not just building doors here, we're building men. And that was, and he took that very seriously. And he would oftentimes hire men that maybe had a checkered past or had a hard time getting a job, and he would really invest in them and disciple them. And, uh, and such was the case for myself. And I saw the ministry that he had to a lot of his customers. And on the business card, uh, it was, uh, I think, John 10, 9, I am the true door. And, you know, if you're going to do that, you really got to back that up. You know, if you're going to stamp Jesus on your advertising, then you better back that up. And he did. He really did. And uh, that was always so cool to me. And, and so that's the idea here. You know, he, he, was, uh, he was building men in, in, his, in his ministry, in his job, in his workplace, in his company. It was a stewardship. The men that he had there were, were given to him by God, he, he felt, he believed. And so uh, that's the way that it ought to be. And it says, knowing that you have a master in heaven. So we have a master, and he is absolutely just. He is so very good and gracious to us. And that being the case, you can do no other. You know, uh, someone who owns a company but has a heavenly master cannot then turn around and be a cruel and a harsh, uh, you know, master, if you will. You know, excuse me, you understand what, I, what I'm saying when I say that. But you can't do that. You, and, and you see that kind of thing in the New Testament. Jesus deals with that. You know, the guy that that owed a great debt and it was forgiven him and then he ran and found someone else who who owed crumbs compared to what he owed and he was extremely harsh with that person you remember that and so that's the idea you can't do that employers have to be gracious to their employees because you have a master who has been so incredibly gracious to you and so that's the obligation that's the obligation for the employee and for the employer, for the new man, the new woman in Christ. It affects not only the home, the children and the parents and the husbands and the wives, but it also goes over into the workplace, to the workplace. And quite frankly, for most of us who have or who do work, uh, you know, 40 to 60 hours a week, I mean, you realize that is like a second home. I mean, oftentimes the people that you work with, you spend more time with them than you do with the people in your own home. And you know what I'm talking about. And so there's a very real sense in which we are to live out those Christian principles just as much in that arena as the other. Really, there shouldn't be a separation between the two. It's Christ in all facets. And so with that, Paul is now going to move over into prayer. And so point number three I've titled this Glorifying Christ in Your Prayer Life, in Your Prayer Closet, in Your Devotional Life. So we glorify Christ in the home, we glorify Christ in the workplace, but we also have our personal quiet time with the Lord, our devotion time, where we meet with the Lord. And so Paul is going to address that now. So, uh, under glorifying Christ in your prayer life, I'm going to say, A, commitment to prayer. Commitment to prayer. Verse 2, it says, Continue earnestly in prayer, being vigilant in it with thanksgiving. I've heard it said that if you really want to humble somebody, just ask them about their prayer life. Can I get a witness? I mean, if you really want to humble somebody, ask them about their prayer life. That, is, that hits me every time because I know I don't pray as I ought. And I think most of us feel that. I know a few, I know a few Christians that are just prayer warriors. That is what they do. 
Um, but I think for the most of us, it's, it's hard to do. It's hard to sit still. It's hard to gather your thoughts. It's hard to focus and concentrate. It's hard to carve out that time. It's hard to be disciplined enough to actually make that a priority. But as a Christian, we have to. We must. And quite honestly, I believe that this is not here by accident. If we really want to be that, that husband, that wife, that obedient child, that gracious parent, that, that boss, that, it, that employee that faithfully serves the Lord, we need to, we got to pray, right? We got to pray because we need the mercy of God. We need the help of God. And so we are to continue earnestly in prayer, being vigilant in it with thanksgiving. So this continuing earnestly in prayer, to continue in it earnestly, this is ongoing, fervent, persistent prayer. That's the idea. Not just a little, little prayer here, a little prayer there, maybe 30 seconds before bed as I'm falling asleep or, or before we eat our meals, but to really be serious about prayer, to be very, very earnest and persistent in our prayer life. Jesus takes up this matter in the Gospels. I'd like to read a couple of texts to you. In Luke chapter 18, Jesus tells a parable, and he says this in chapter 18, verse 1. Then he spoke a parable to them that men always ought to pray and not lose heart. That we ought always to pray and not lose heart. Not to get discouraged, not to give, give up on it, but to stay the course and to pray saying this, that there was, a, there was in a certain city a judge who did not fear God nor regard man. Now there was a widow in that city, and she came to him saying, Get justice for me and from my adversary. And he would not for a while, but afterward he said within himself, Though I do not fear God nor regard man, yet because this widow troubles me, I will avenge her, lest by her continual coming she weary me. It's a strange story. Jesus says that we ought to be persistent like that. And he tells the story of a judge who was really a wicked judge. He was not just. He was not God-fearing. And this lady came to him with a matter, and he really didn't want to oblige her request, but she wouldn't stop. She was just so persistent. She just kept in on this guy until finally he said, okay, I give up. You know, I'm tired of hearing this. I can't deal with this anymore. Now, that is not to say that's how God is, but this is an argument from the lesser to the greater. God really is a good and heavenly judge, a gracious and a merciful and a compassionate judge. And he is, he is very ready and willing to hear and to respond according to his gracious and merciful will. Yet we are told that we must be persistent in our pursuit that we are to continue on, that we are to press in, that we are to, to engage relentlessly in prayer. Same thing, Jesus tells another story with the same idea over in Luke chapter 11, verse 5. He says, And he said to them, Which of you shall have a friend? And go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has come to me on his journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within and say, Do not trouble me. The door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot rise and give that to you. I say to you, though he will not rise and give to him because he is his friend, yet because of his persistence, he will rise and give him as many as he needs. Again, it's the same idea. It's a, it's a strange thing, but you know, hospitality is such a major um, uh, part of that culture. And so this guy is here in his home, some guest comes in, and he doesn't have anything to put before them, so what's he going to do? I guess hospitality, unless it's your neighbor, right? So he goes over to his neighbor and starts beating on the door in the middle of the night, and he's like, I need, I need some bread for a guest who's come to my house. And the guy's like, look, can't do it, can't help you. The door is shut, my kids are in bed, go away. And so it wasn't because it was his friend that he served him, but the guy kept knocking. The guy kept banging on the door. He wasn't going to give up. And so finally the guy gave in and, and gave him the bread, right? So Jesus says this to that, verse 9, So I say to you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks it will be opened. 
So just like that persistent man, you got to be like that, knocking on heaven's gates. You have to be going relentlessly after the Lord in pursuit of what it is that you are praying for. Jesus goes on to say, If a son asks for bread from any father among you, will he give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent instead of a fish? Or if he asks for an egg, will he offer him a scorpion? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? And so there, again, is that, that idea from the, from the lesser to the greater. If this, if this guy here, this neighbor, was willing finally to answer because of the guy's persistence, how much more will our heavenly Father, who is a good and gracious king, respond to us if we are persistent in prayer? And so, brothers, sisters, we must be committed to prayer. That must be our first, our first go-to. If we really want to be the man of God or the woman of God, if we really want to walk in the newness of life as we have been called to walk, the lifeline is prayer. The lifeline is prayer. We have to be on our face before the Lord. And I'm talking to myself here, too, very much so. I'm preaching to myself right now. I know how badly I need this. I know how much more I need to be committed to persistent, fervent, ongoing prayer. And then Paul says that we must be vigilant in it. That is, to be watchful, and one commentator said to be alert for specific needs is kind of the idea. And so we are those who are praying faithfully and diligently, and we are watchful in our prayers. We are, we are looking for opportunities. We are looking for needs so that we can really pray for people in a very powerful and helpful way. And then he says to do so with thanksgiving. And so first I would say this is to, you know, watch out for the pure, purely wish list type of prayers. We go right into that. We beeline into that. I, I was in a prayer meeting years ago, and I was, I was trying to kind of set this thing up, and I encouraged the people that when we, when we pray, let's start by worshiping the Lord. Let's thank the Lord. Let's bless the Lord. Let's, you know, acknowledge His, his character, His attributes, His works. And I did, and, and as soon as it went to the next guy, I mean, beeline straight to the, the wish list. And then it was like that for the rest of the time. And it's like, we really have to be careful that we don't do that, right? We, we want to be people who start by praising God for who He is and thanking God for what He has done. And, um, Another commentator write, he said this, that the connection here with thanksgiving may suggest the threefold rhythm of intercession, watching for answers to prayer, and then thanking God when the answer appears. I mean, you can kind of see that in the text here. And so we are praying diligently, faithfully. We are watching for the response of God in the prayer and then thanking God when He responds. How often do we thank God for answered prayer? This really convicted me. I thought, I wonder how many times God answers my prayer, and I don't even recognize that. I, I forgot that I even prayed that. Because we pray so many things, we ask for so many things, are, are we really watchful to see how God answers those prayers? Are we really thanking God when He does? I really suspect that if we knew just how much God does answer our prayers, we would be blown away, and we would be praying a lot more. We would be a lot more excited to pray because we would be aware of just how much God really does interact with us in that way, and we don't even recognize it. We don't even know it. So Paul says you got to fight against that. you got to be watchful in your prayers, and you got to be thankful in your prayers. Next, so, so that was commitment to prayer. B, this is the substance of prayer. The substance of prayer. Verse 3, Meanwhile, praying also for us that God would open to us a door for the Word, to speak the mystery of Christ, for which I am also in chains, that I may make it manifest as I ought to speak. So, meanwhile, praying for us also. So, you guys, you need to be praying, you need to be dedicated to prayer, but while you're at it, while you're praying, would you please pray for me? And I want you to note the content in this request. For open doors to speak the mystery of Christ. Now, from where is Paul writing this letter? prison. Did you notice that his request was not, pray that I get out of prison? I mean, isn't that what you, I would have prayed. I would have been like, hey, can you pray for me while you're at it that God would get me out of here? I mean, I don't think that's an unreasonable request. 
But that's not what Paul asked for. Instead, he prayed that he would have the opportunity to preach the gospel, the mysteries of Christ, while he is there in his chains. So this is, this is a mission-minded prayer. It's not a comfort-driven prayer. It's not, God, get me out of this situation. It's, God, your will be done while I'm in this situation. Use me, God, to further your will while you have me in this place. This is a spiritually solid prayer. You know, um, there is certainly a time and a place to pray for physical things, to pray for deliverance, to pray for healing, to pray for all of those kinds of things. But I think that we oftentimes neglect spiritual prayer, praying for spiritual matters, that which is most important, I believe, to the Lord. And so I would just say we don't want to be just always trying to pray ourselves out of the situation that we're in, right? Instead, pray, God, help me to get what you want me to get out of this situation because you have me here. So it's not, God, get me out of here. It's, God, whatever it is you're trying to teach me, may I get it. Whatever this test is, Lord, may I pass the test. Would you give me the wherewithal to withstand and to grow and to learn and to honor you? And, that, and even furthermore, pray that God would be glorified and served in difficult circumstances. And that's really the heart of what Paul is getting at. Pray that while I'm here, I can serve God faithfully and bring glory to God in any and every circumstance. Whether we eat or we drink or whatsoever we do, we do all to the glory of God. And whatever situation that you are in right now as, as incredibly crushing or painful as it may be, you can honor Christ in the midst of it. You can glorify God. You can serve Him. You can grow. And that's what God wants to do. Like I said, so often Christianity happens in the valley floor. It happens in the crushing. It happens in the testing. It happens in the waiting. And so we don't want to pray our way out of that. We want to pray that God would, God's will would be done in our lives in the midst of it. And so that is the substance of prayer. And lastly, moving on here, point number four, glorifying Christ in our sphere of influence. In, in our community. We all have different communities. Our community converges here in this place. We are a faith community. We are the body of Christ. But then throughout the week, we go out. We fan out, and our paths go in very different directions. And wherever it is that God takes you, that is your, your sphere of influence. That is the place where God wants to use you to be a witness and a testimony of Christ. And that is a very real part of our daily living for Christ, glorifying Christ. And so, the first thing we're going to note here is our testimony and our conduct. Testimony and our conduct, how we carry ourselves, our character, our walk. Verse 5, it says, Walk in wisdom towards those who are outside, redeeming the time. Walk in wisdom towards those who are outside, redeeming the time. So this walking in wisdom here. Ephesians 5 uh, really, you find a, a verse that's very similar to this, but it actually builds on it just a little bit. So I would like to read that to you and expand on that a little bit. Ephesians 5, verse 15 says this, See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. So first, we're told to walk circumspectly. And that is basically how we, how we conduct ourselves, how we live, how we carry ourselves. We're to do so circumspectly. And that word simply means with caution, with caution. You know, I've had a dream over the years, not often, but like I'm walking on this path and all of a sudden I begin to realize that there are snakes everywhere. You ever had a, a dream like that? And it's not like a full-on terror type dream, although it should because I, I hate snakes, but I'm very aware of where I'm stepping, right? I'm definitely watching where I place my foot. And in a lot of ways, we need to be like that. We don't need to live in terror. We don't need to be afraid of everything that is around the corner. You know, Satan is not hiding behind every bush waiting to jump out and get us. But we have to walk cautiously in this life. We do have to walk cautiously and with wisdom. And he says to do so not as fools, 
but as wise. Now, whenever you, when you find the word fool in the Bible, it doesn't usually mean in an intellectual sense. Fool in the Bible is someone who rejects God. In Psalms, it says that the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. And so the fool is the one who rejects God, and the wise is the one who fears God, right? The beginning of wisdom is what? The fear of the Lord. And so that's the idea here. And so we're not to live like an unbeliever who disregards the will of the Lord. That is foolish. Instead, we are to live as the wise person who believes God and who is living for the will of the Lord, who is walking in the will of the Lord. That is with the intention to obey it, understanding God's will so that we can obey it. And that goes back to what I was saying in the beginning of the message about listening with the intention of obeying. That's wisdom. That's the idea. The fool disregards God, rejects God. The wise person is intently seeking and listening to God so as to obey God. That is how we are to walk. And then we are to redeem the time. One commentator says it like this, the Greek word for time denotes a fixed, measured, allocated season. With the definite article, the, it likely refers to one's lifetime as a believer. We are to make the most of our time on this evil earth and fulfilling God's purposes, lining up every opportunity for useful worship and service. We are to be aware of the brevity of life, redeeming the time. That means that we all have an allotted amount of time on this earth that God has given us. Nothing's going to stop that. Nothing is going to add to it. Though we try, I mean, we really do. I mean, we really gr just grip onto this life and do everything that we can to preserve it and to save it. But the Bible says that really that's fixed. That's in God's timing, and God has given us an allotted amount of time, and we got to make the most of it, folks. we got to do everything we can, we can with what God has given us. That is walking wisely. That is walking in wisdom, redeeming the time, making the most of the time that God has given us, and we are to walk in wisdom toward those who are outside, Paul says in Colossians. That is, those who are outside of the faith, unbelievers, those who have not trusted Christ, we are to live like believers in the midst of unbelievers. We are to be a witness to the unbelieving world. You with me? There's something called the invisible audience in psychology. I don't know if you've ever heard of this, but sometimes people perform for invisible audiences. I'll just give you an example. Like in U-Turn for Christ in Tennessee, there's a men's and a women's ranch, and they're not allowed to talk to each other or even look at each other. But I know that they're aware that they're in the same room. The women are aware that the men are there. The men, uh, men are aware, vice versa. And so they behave a certain kind of way because in their mind, they, uh, their behavior changes because they're trying to look cool or get the attention of someone else in the room. And that's kind of like this performing for an invisible audience. The reality is most of the time there is nobody watching or looking. You're performing for an invisible audience. And a lot of people live under the weight of that in, in the regular world, you know. But there is a sense in which that is a reality for the Christian. We are being watched. There are people that are scrutinizing our lives to see if we really are who we say that we are, if we really live out the things that we claim that we believe. I remember, you know, years ago, uh, I was a new believer. I was working as a forklift driver, and I was just on fire for Jesus. And I was uh, C Hank Williams Sr. Don't know if you heard of him, but uh, he has a song called I Saw the Light. And man, that song right there, I mean, it just takes me back. And I was uh, singing it out there on that forklift. I mean, I was just getting after it, singing that at the top of my lungs. And a little later in the day, I was trying to stack this crate like 20, 30 feet up in the air, and they have four pegs, and they're really hard to stack, and I tried and tried and tried until I finally exploded, and I said the F word like 15 times at the top of my lungs. And um, so I drive back around, and, and a coworker comes up to me and says, didn't I, I heard you this morning out there singing, I saw the light. I said, yeah. He said, well, what was that? And I was like, oh, man. And so, yeah, I could tell he never let me live that one down. And so basically, don't do that, okay? 
don't do that. Because as Christians, people are watching out for that kind of stuff. You know, consider that when you're standing in line somewhere or driving down the street. Consider that. You know, I have found myself in some situations where I had to stand in line and I was irritated. And I, I had to hold it in. And then I bumped into someone else from that line in a different context and thought, oh boy, I'm so glad I did not flesh out. Man, thank you, Lord. And you've got to be aware of that kind of stuff because that will always be there. All right, let's close. I'm sorry, I'm running a little late here. Verse 6. Um, testimony and conversation. Let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer each one. So we want our speech to always be fitting of the Lord, to always be with grace. Ephesians 4.28 says, uh, Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. So did you catch that? He says, look, let your speech build people up. Let your speech encourage people. Don't have corrupt speech. That literally is rotten. Don't have rotten speech. And then he says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit. That's directly connected to that. So when, when our speech does tear people down, when it is not God-glorifying, when it is rotten and corrupt and foul, that displeases God and that grieves the Holy Spirit. He says, don't do that. Instead, let your speech be seasoned with salt. You know, salt, it brings flavor, it preserves, it purifies. That's what our speech ought to be like. Life-giving, encouraging, blessing, strengthening. That's the way our speech ought to be. And he says, so that you may know how you ought to answer each one. This is the way we want to be with those who are outside the faith. You know, we don't want to disassociate with outsiders. We don't want to be standoffish or rude. We don't want to be obnoxious towards outsiders. Christians can definitely be obnoxious. We can really go overboard. We don't want to do that. But we also don't want to be fleshly or carnal. You know, we don't want to be telling, you know, filthy jokes or laughing at filthy jokes in the workplace. I mean, like that kind of stuff uh, happens a lot. We've got to watch out for that. Because James chapter 3, verse 9 says this, talking about our tongue, our speech. With it we bless our God and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. Out of the same mouth proceed blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring send forth fresh water and bitter from the same opening? Can a fig tree, uh, my brethren, bear olives, or a grapevine bear figs? Thus, no spring yields both salt water and fresh. Look, if we are Christians, if we are walking in the light, if you are a new man, the new woman in Christ, your speech ought to reflect that, especially out in the community that you live your life. Right? We want our speech to be seasoned with salt. We want to we have a testimony in the outside world amongst the unbelievers. We want to reflect Christ. We want to live as a new man or a new woman in Christ in the home, in our marriages, in our parenting, in the workplace, we want to, in our, in our prayer closet, in our devotion time, and out in the world that God has called us to live. We are a new man in Christ, we are a new woman in Christ, and we must live it out in every arena of life. That is the demand of the gospel. And I'll just close with this for the third time, sorry. I will close with this. That is the demand of the gospel. The, the gospel is the good news of Jesus Christ. The gospel says that we are in big trouble. So that's bad news. We're in big trouble. Apart from God, we have to answer to God for our sin. And God is a just judge, and He's not just going to pardon sin just because, right? He's going to he's punish sin justly. He must. He must. But God is also gracious and loving. And God sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to die in our stead for our sin so that God's justice could be served there on the cross and His graciousness and His love and His mercy could be extended to us through Jesus Christ so that we could be forgiven. So God's justice and His love and mercy, they collide at the cross. 
and we have received of that. We have called upon the name of the Lord. We have repented of our sins. We have, we have trusted Christ for salvation. His, his perfect life, death, resurrection on our account. Our sins placed on Him, judged on the cross, removed forevermore. And now we are brand new. We are born again. And we are new in Him. We are the new man, the new woman. And this is what that looks like. If you don't know Jesus, if you're watching at home right now or you're here in this room and you have never truly committed your life to Jesus, you have not trusted Him as your Lord and Savior, today is the day. Don't wait another day because tomorrow is not promised. It just isn't. And why waste another day when you could be walking with the Lord today? When you could know God right now as your Heavenly Father? And that invitation stands open to you. So after service is over, if you want to come up and talk to me, I would love to talk to you about that. We'll be here. And so let me go ahead and pray for us as, as we close. God, we love you and we praise your holy name. And I thank you for the gospel of Jesus Christ. I thank you for the forgiveness, the abundant forgiveness and the new life that is ours in Him. And I thank You that You call us, Lord, into a new way of living. And that these deep, lofty theological truths aren't just for the abstract or for the, the, the seminary uh, classroom, Lord. They're, they're for our lives. Thank You, Lord, that this is what You're doing in our lives. And help us, God, I pray, all of us in this room, to walk these things out this week. I'll just pray a special blessing over the folks in this room right now. They need you, God. We all need you. I need you. Help us, Lord. Please have mercy on us. Cleanse us, God, of unrighteousness. Bless us by your Holy Spirit. Cause us to fall more deeply in love with your Son and to, to imitate Christ in the community and in our homes and in the workplace. May we walk with you, Father, day by day. God, would you meet our needs in Christ? Would you provide for us according to your riches and your grace? We praise you and we worship you in Jesus' name. Amen.